this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. We talk a lot on this show about democracy and the fear that many of us have, well-placed, that authoritarians will take charge and take over. I think too often, though, we think of this as a specific problem to the United States and a personal problem, if you will, tied to Donald Trump, or at least to the Republican Party. And while it is true that one party has slipped off the edge into neo-fascism, it's also true that we have certain structural impediments that make democracy different and difficult in the United States and really thwart the will of the people. Some of those protections are a good thing. They protect minority rights, and some of them are not. And we're lucky this week to have two guests who have written a terrific book on the subject, Tyranny of the Minority, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And they are here to explain to us exactly what those problems are and what we do about it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. All right. So I'll start with you, Stephen, so we don't have both of you talking at the same time. How did you meet Daniel? This is your second book. Your first was a huge hit, How Democracies Die. Did you guys know each other professionally before this? Did you run into one another at one of those cocktail parties you're supposed to have up in Cambridge? No, no. We uh, go further back than that. We were uh, in graduate school together at UC Berkeley. Uh, I was a few years ahead of Daniel, but we knew each other a bit in graduate school. And then Daniel arrived at Harvard two or three years after after me. And we, so we've both been colleagues in the Harvard government department for two decades. Terrific. Well, I am a Cal alum, both undergraduate and law school. I'm sure you're both much younger than I am. So, um, but it's good to have you both. Um, Daniel, the book is a little bit of a downer. Um, it basically describes the way in which protections for minority rights have been transformed into, as the title says, a tyranny of the minority. Let's start with the complaint you hear, the response you hear from many conservatives who are benefiting from these devices. They say, it was always supposed to work this way. There are all these protections for the minority in the Constitution. You're just complaining about this wonderful document that's lasted for 200 plus years. What's wrong with that? We should have minority rights. What's the answer to that? Yeah, so good. Yeah, I, I mean, there. Are, I think there are two answers to that. Uh, number one, you know, I think it's true that all constitutions new, need to protect minorities and political minorities, that that's a good thing. And that's why we have a Bill of Rights. That's why we have an independent judiciary to, and democracy really consists not only of majority rule, but also the protection of minority rights. But the point that we are making is twofold. Really, first of all, our constitution wasn't really crafted intentionally uh, with a kind of blueprint to do uh, to do that. I mean, it was in many ways a compromise. In part, was intended to kind of constrain majorities, but it was a lot. There was a, the institutions that we're talking about in the book, the Electoral College, um, the Senate, were were the result of compromise. Uh, you know, the founders were under incredible pressure at the at the Constitutional Convention. They were afraid that the British or the French might invade at any moment if they didn't strike a deal. So as a kind of last best option, 
at the end of the convention, they settled on the Electoral College. There was, there was nothing like it that existed really anywhere in the world. There'd never been an elected executive like this. And so they stumbled upon it and immediately it failed. It didn't work from the beginning as designed because of the rise of parties. And so we've been kind of wor working with these institutions ever since. So I think, first of all, it's important to just remember that it's not a kind of Ark of the Covenant. This is a man-made set of institutions that, of course, can be approved upon, have their benefits. So that, that's the first point, to sort of demystify that. As great as the Constitution is in many ways, throughout our history, we've done the hard work of making it better. We've made it, we've uh, democratized our, our political system by directly electing senators now rather than appointing them. That's a constitutional amendment by giving women the right to vote. That was not in the original Constitution. And so our basic point is that over time, uh, we've made our Constitution, the reason our Constitution works so well is because we've worked on making it better. Uh, and that's the work that we think we should continue to do. And that's the work we've stopped doing over the last 50 years. And that's why we are in the situation we are today. I think your point about this kind of fetishizing of the Constitution is so important. Um, you know, I feel like telling Americans, go watch Hamilton. That's all about these political compromise. Nothing is set in stone as if a two uh, House legislature, one elected by population, one with simply equal number of representatives is a divine um, and necessity in uh, a democracy. So it does seem that um, although reverence for the Constitution is a good thing, um, perhaps um, creating a, a fetish over never changing this document, never updating it has been you know, our difficulty. Stephen, one of the points you make so well in the book is that although minority rights, and by that, I think the founders meant factions, political minorities, not a racial minority, not a religious, not, a, um, not any other kind of minority, were set to be protected. The way things have worked out, that protection has now been for, become one for rural sparsely uh, populated states of one party, primarily of one demographic group, white, and largely Christian. And that matching up um, is really not in the interests of diffusing factions, which was one of the concerns that they had, but poses a real challenge to democracy in a pluralistic system. How did those protections for political minorities, for factions, migrate into sort of a keep employing Republicans long after they have lost the majority and no longer support um, the things that most Americans want? Well, I should preface this by saying this is not the fault of the Republicans. Uh, they're, they're benefiting. So they, they didn't design this advantage. They can't blame the Republicans for this. Um, first of all, I think it's important to, um, to make a distinction between minority rights and minority and essential minority protections and, and, and minority party advantages, right? The, the really critical protections that, that, uh, for minorities are, uh, found in the Bill of Rights. They're reinforced, as Daniel said, by, by the Supreme Court and, None of these things ought to be touched. The, 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 the most important minority protections that the framers were thinking about um, are, are continue to be essential today and, and, um, uh, and, and we're not advocating for their, for, their, for their change. Most importantly, parties have to, 
minority parties need guarantees that the majority, that temporary majority, whoever wins the presidency, whoever wins a majority in a state house or in the legislature, doesn't have the power to legislate them out of existence, to change the political rules of the game that either threaten their individual rights or their their right to compete as a party, right? That's why we have a, um, a bicameral legislature, that's why we have an independent judiciary, that's why we have a Bill of Rights, and it's why the Constitution is very difficult to reform. The, the advantages that you were referring to that we discussed in the book are primarily a product of the electoral system um, and the structure of the U.S. Senate, which was not about ever protecting partisan minorities. It was about Delaware's insistence that it get the same representation as Virginia and Pennsylvania and larger states, right? The, the, the equal representation in the Senate um, was a demand of, of small states at the time, at a time when the interests of states, not parties or factions or particular ideologies or social classes, but states, people thought it would be Delaware against Virginia. Um, that, that was one of the primary cleavages at the time. Delaware insisted that it get equal representation and, uh, you know, was willing to walk out of the, 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 the convention to, to defend it. Eventually, as Daniel said, got it. So we got a, a Senate where every state is equal representation. At the time, there were no big urban areas. So the, the urban rural divide was not what it is today. But 230 plus years later, um, the states of Texas and Florida and California are much, much, much bigger, unimaginably bigger than Wyoming and Vermont and, and North Dakota. And so that creates a very, very disproportionate Senate. Uh, and it also weighs on uh, in how uh, the, the Electoral College functions that allows for the loser of a presidential vote to become president. So the, the reforms that we're talking about are not about um, minority party protections at all, but basic fairness. Like very few people think that the loser of a presidential election should should win the presidency. Um, very, very quickly to, to why this became, why the electoral rules that were designed more than 200 years ago benefit one party for most of our history. So our, our electoral system has always overrepresented sparsely populated territories. That has been a constant in U.S. history. So that's always been you know, good for Vermont and bad for California, as long as those have been states. But through, for 200 years, our two parties, two major parties, whatever they were, always had urban and rural wings. Both of them, for better or worse, had urban and rural wings. It is only in the 21st century that the parties have divided on urban-rural lines. Only in the 21st century that the Republicans have become overwhelmingly small-town, sparsely populated party, and the Democrats have become an overwhelmingly urban metropolitan party. And so for the first time, our rules are biased, not just against cities and in favor of, of, of more sparsely populated territories, but they're biased in favor of one party against another. And that is going to get us into trouble. Daniel, Republicans would say, and even some Democrats would say, well, the solution is Democrats just start having must appeal to people in those rural states. This is a fixable problem without moving the structural pieces around because Democrats used to appeal to people in, you know, the uh, uh, upper mountain states and the Midwest, um, and they can do it again. 
now that does not solve, and we'll get to that in a moment, um, the gerrymandering issue and the, um, both the state and federal level. But what is the response to that? Why isn't this fixable simply by political innovation and expansion on the Democrats' part? Well, I, I think in the short run, certainly that is the case. The Democrats should do all they can. I mean, that's the nature of electoral politics, that both parties should try to win majorities, try to win elections. And if you think the Democrats are the party that is going to uh, do the things that you want, then you should vote for them. And they should be innovative and reaching new voters. The problem is we live in a democracy in which both parties need to be able to win. And, you know, you need to have at least two parties that can win majorities. And currently we're in a situation where one party is not capable of winning national majorities, at least in presidential elections, that Republicans have only won, won the popular vote for the presidency one time since 1988. And so our concern is what effect this is actually, one of our concerns is what effect this is actually having on the Republican Party. Because the, and so we, we just, we call this constitutional protectionism. Because the Republican Party doesn't have to win majorities, it can win power without winning majorities. It doesn't do what normal political parties do when they lose. Normal political parties do the same thing that the British Labour Party did after many years in the wilderness, after Margaret Thatcher was in power for over a decade. The Tories were in power over a decade. They had to regroup. They came up with a new ideology. They came, came up with new faces and they, and they, won and they ran again and they won. The Democratic Party under Bill Clinton, after many years out of power, revamped. They came up with a new ideology and this is, and they had to reach new voters. This is what, this is how democracy is supposed to work. In our current situation, because the Republican Party can win power without winning majorities at the national level, they don't do this. And instead what they do, especially because they're under great pressure from their base, is they've doubled down on their ideology. And so we now have two parties, one party, the Democratic Party, very diverse party that can win national majorities, another party that can't. And when it loses, what it does is it attacks the Congress in January 6, uh, 2021. If it could win majorities, it wouldn't have to resort to this. And so this is poisoning our political system. So this, this is one major reason why we think this is a problem. There, there's other problems, though, I should say. Now, part of... I think what has happened here is we had a core of minority protections built into the Constitution. You've listed a couple of them, the Senate, the Electoral College, which in some ways is just a function of the Senate since those states are overrepresented. But we seem to have put minority uh, sort of uh, accoutrements on top of them. It's like barnacles. They've grown and grown and grown. So in the Senate, you now have the filibuster. That wasn't in the Constitution. That's a minority of a minority. You now have a single senator with ability to hold up every single military appointment. That's certainly not in the Constitution. So how did these other sort of um, minority accoutrements, these barnacles of minority power, Stephen, get fixed in place? And why did Democrats ever think this was a good idea? Or did have they sort of become attached to them because they fear, oh, we'll be in the minority one day and we need all of these ridiculous uh, minority uh, levers of power? Well, I think your, your last point, uh, answers the question about Democrats and and why they uh, why are they behind it? But they're the um, you're you know you're absolutely right. Not only are these um, I'm going to focus primarily on the filibuster, but not only are these rules not in the Constitution, but there's pretty good evidence that our smartest founders were 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 directly opposed to the idea of creating supermajority rules for for regular legislation. 
Um, they had experience, in particular, Hamilton was militantly opposed uh, because of the experience of the Articles of Confederation, uh, looking over at what had happened um, uh, in the late 18th century in Poland, where they had extreme version of, of, uh, of, of, minority, of minority veto uh, in their parliament. And um, so, so our framers themselves didn't think that you should have, you'd need a, a supermajority rule to pass regular legislation. It emerged as, as I'm not going to get into great details, but basically emerged as an, an oversight in the early 19th century and as there were changing rules in the Senate for a very long time, for a, nearly a century, the filibuster existed, but was little used. It was little used in part because the parties were internally diverse. They were very heterogeneous. They were not very disciplined. And so the stakes um you rarely had partisan minority uh, or majorities imposing themselves over majorities. So you didn't need this sort of minority protection the same way. The filibuster only really took off in the 20th century and only became a regular, a routine feature of politics. Uh, even in the mid 20th century, it was, it was like, it was, it was only used in sort of emergency situations, primarily in fact, by opponents of civil rights legislation uh, to, to slow down our block legislation. But it's only in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that the filibuster gradually becomes something that's used in every single piece of legislation. So, and, and really in, in, the, in the 21st century becomes an afterthought. It becomes a true 60-vote rule. So it, uh, politicians for most of our history used the filibuster with restraint, did not it did not make use of the filibuster to block majorities um, because the stakes of politics were considered relatively low and, and it, it was not a routine feature of politics. Only in the last few decades that the filibuster has become a truly, a, a, an everyday part of our legislation, a, a, a truly super majority rule. Can I, can I just, can I add one thing to this, which is that, you know, so uh, so all democracies have suffered from this problem, which is that they're, you know, very, in the late 19th century, all democracies kind of came upon this problem that people could block legislation through these means. And so what happened over the course of the 19th century into the 20th centuries is most democracies, including the United States, introduced rules to prevent this from happening. Uh, and, you know, in a way, what we've done is we've kind of hung on to the kind of old system, or it's kind of reemerged uh, late in the 20th century into the 21st century when other democracies have abandoned this. Uh, you know, in some, you know, Iceland we described in the book was a place that had a, had a strong filibuster until recently, but most places have essentially abandoned this, realizing that this makes politics so dysfunctional that essentially it undermines everybody's interests. And so in this sense, we remain an outlier. And unfortunately, is still used um, with most frequency when it comes to things like civil rights, the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, the commission to study the January 6th uh, insurrection, and of, for a while, at least for judges, now they've gone to a, a majority structure. And just, in fact, just one, one more thing. I mean, it's that this, this, is, this is also often framed in terms of minority rights, but there's nothing in democratic theory or democratic practice elsewhere that says that a minority of 41 has the right to systematically and permanently thwart a majority of 59 in the legislature. No other democracy allows that. And in fact, we don't have a democracy, and many people are disturbed that our democracy doesn't function because you have huge majorities in favor of certain things and they don't get done. 
a very uh, strong feature of our constitution is um, it's um, very good at self-protection. It's almost like a Star Trek episode where the thing is protecting itself. So you can't fix the machine because the machine won't let you fix it. It's very hard to change our constitution. You either have to have a convention, God forbid, we should open up the whole thing, or we should have uh, super majorities in both parties, and then it has to go out for a super majority in the state. So how do you get reform? How do you affect the electoral college? How do you get term limits for judges? How do you get um, a um, Senate that is perhaps less um, heavily tilted towards rural, sparsely uh, populated states? How do you get past the Constitution itself? Well, yeah, no, that's a great question, and it's a question that we contend with. I mean, so in, in our last chapter, we proposed 15 reforms, some of which, you know, are, you know, plausibly out of reach, uh, others of which, though, are within reach. You know, some of these reforms that we're talking about are things that are not constitutional. So, I mean, that would be the first point to say that there is a path forward through, let's say, reforming the filibuster, weakening the filibuster, eliminating the filibuster, which is not constitutional, uh, you know, uh, uh, automatic voter registration is something else that we argue for, which is something that states do and are doing has just recently happened in Pennsylvania. And our sense, though, is that the, the, the way forward is by through through these smaller steps, momentum can be generated. And one of the because certainly the big barrier to reform is the constitutional structure itself. But a second barrier is our in a sense, our kind of lack of political imagination that we just simply think it's impossible. And partly because we think it is impossible, it is impossible. And, you know, evidence for that claim is that the Constitution has been changed. You know, there's been these kind of insurmountable looking barriers in the past. And yet, you know, there is an American tradition of reforming our Constitution. And one notices that these constitutional reforms tend to cluster together, you know, immediately after the Civil War, or perhaps more relevant for us, the early part of the 20th century, where these reforms cluster together. I think part of the explanation for that is that, you know, once one reform happens, momentum can be generated and people begin to think, you know, that our imagination is reignited. We're reminded this is part of our tradition and that it is possible to carry out reform. And, you know, one of the, again, one of the biggest barriers is people, it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy to think, well, nothing is possible, so we won't even try. And it's really not even really in polite company to even talk about this kind of stuff. And that's essentially part of the, the kind of taboo in a sense that we're trying to break. Do you guys have a view on the interstate um, popular vote compact? That's a sort of arrangement by which um, the states would agree to award their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. Do you think that's feasible? Do you think there's momentum? Is that one of those temporary fixes we might get, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, because so we we do point out in the book that the U.S. Constitution is too difficult to, 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 to change. The, um, it, it ought to be very difficult to change the Constitution. Let me be clear about that. But the U.S. among democracies is by far the hardest to change. So we ought to be moving the direction of, of a Constitution that is somewhat easier to reform. Obviously, that's not going to happen immediately. So one solution, one um, longstanding response to a, a constitution that is at times impossible to reform are workarounds and or efforts, for example, to make changes at the state level and generate momentum at the state level. So that we, and that happened with, with uh, women's suffrage. It happened with direct election of senators. Uh, and there's this effort to do it 
um, at the state level. I'm um, a little skeptical that the, that the, that uh, you can get to uh, a, a sufficient number of states without entering into into pretty red states to 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 do it. But it it makes sense given the difficulty of constitutional reform to find legal and and sort of politically practical workarounds. It makes perfect sense. And, and, you know, it should be encouraged. That said, we sometimes forget how close we've come to abolishing the electoral college in the past. Uh, 1969, 1970, there was overwhelming support among the leaderships of both parties, support by President Nixon, support by all the major interest groups, Chamber of Commerce, the American Bar Association, the AFL-CIO, overwhelmingly passed the House, 70 plus percent support in the in the U.S. public, had a majority of support in the U.S. Senate and fell a few votes short in, in the Senate. So we have come very, very close to abolishing the Electoral College in the past. So I don't I don't think we should just write off the possibility of constitutional amendment entirely. One of the other ways, um, if we're not going to get rid of it, is to rebalance it. And um, for sake of argument, let's say we don't want to take on uh, the only two senators per state. But we also have not expanded the House of Representatives in a very long time. The founders did not intend for one congressman to be representing and I don't know what the equivalent in their population would be, but now it's seven, eight hundred thousand people. That's far bigger than a whole state was um, back in the time of the Constitution. Um, and there are other good reasons for expanding the House um, in terms of um, getting rid of, um, you know, uh, some of these uh, filibuster lines. It's harder to fill. It, it's harder, rather, uh, the. Uh, Gerrymandering, it's harder to gerryman when you have smaller districts. Um, you get better constituent service. Um, was, is that a doable solution, Daniel, do you think, um, to get about expanding the Yeah, the this, is, this, is, this is one of these workarounds where you don't have to make a, have a constitutional change. And in fact, again, there is a you know, tradition of, as you say, of expanding the House in proportion to population. And there's a good there's a good set of arguments on its own terms to do that. And we stopped doing that in the, in the 1920s and just for 100 years have not changed that balance. But if one were to change the balance, it would then change the balance uh, across the states. Now, I guess, the, you know, people might, you know, argue against this to say, well, this is going to help you know, blue states, but not necessarily. This would also mean that there's more uh, more uh, electors from an electoral college from Texas because Texas, any big state, you know, Republican state would also get more representatives. And again, I mean, our point here is that this is not a partisan issue. This is about fairness and kind of making the uh, our electoral institutions reflect populations, which is really the underlying democratic principle. So I think that this is a viable kind of path forward that we should really think about. One of the big problems that um, a lot of people looking at the democracy problem have um, is the Supreme Court. To some extent, the lower courts, which also haven't been expanded in a very long time, um, and they could be. Um, but the Supreme Court has never had a lower approval rating since they started these things. A very large number of these people have been appointed by presidents who never had a popular vote majority. Um, they have lifetime appointments. And pretty soon you get a Supreme Court that is very out of touch with the overwhelming, I'm not just talking a 50, you know, 149 issue, but overwhelming views on these major issues. What do you do about that? So our proposal, and it's it's de- 
debatable and debated whether this requires a constitutional reform. Uh, there, it, arguably, it does not. But we're in favor uh, of, uh, as part of our 15 proposals, for the establishment of term limits uh, for federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, probably 18-year term limits rather than lifetime appointments. It's worth pointing out that the United States is the only established democracy on earth that does not have either an established retirement age or um, term limits. So it is entirely appropriate that we, we want justices who are independent of public opinion. That, that's the reason why we, uh, we have uh, long terms that are separate from presidential terms. We get that. Um, they, there's no question that, that our Supreme Court should remain independent. But as you point out, the, the, the framers didn't anticipate that um, justices would be on the court for 30, 40 plus years. Um, and when, when, when you have been appointed by a Senate or, or approved by a Senate majority 40 years ago, two generations ago, that creates a very, very high risk that you're going to be way out of touch with majority public opinion, too far out of touch. And we're seeing some of the effects of that now. It's not just that, though. It's also our, one of the reasons why the approval rating of the Supreme Court has, has plummeted. And one of the real problems with our, with our Supreme Court right now is the politicization of appointments. So now we've gotten to a point where basically every Supreme Court appointment is a crisis, right? It's likely to be a very high stakes uh, event uh, and, and potentially a crisis. And um, term limits would help to resolve that. It would lower the stakes and lower the temperature for appointments by by basically guar- by guaranteeing every president in her or his four-year term would get, say, two appointments. And so you wouldn't have the, the temptation to say, did do what the Republicans did with Merrick Garland in 2016 or do what was done after Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg was uh, uh, died, um, you, you'd have a much more routinized, much lower stakes process. So with term limits, you get justices who are at least slightly more in touch with uh, that generation's public opinion, and you can kind of div- diffuse and avoid the kind of pretty serious institutional crisis that we've begun to slip in every single Supreme Court appointment. I would add to that that there's another benefit of term limits. The ages of Supreme Court appointees has been getting younger and younger as presidents want to leave a longer and longer stamp. I happen to think that it's good to have a little bit more experience before you get on the Supreme Court. And it's now unthinkable that a 60-year-old would get appointed. You're, you're throwing away 10 good years of whatever this justice may, uh, you know, hold on to. So that's a, a pretty uh, powerful uh, argument for uh, some kind of term limits. seem to be kind of a perfect storm going on here. We have the population shifts that you've talked about. We have a um, fetishizing of the Constitution. We have these barnacles that are on top of them and are on top of them. And we also have one of those political parties that has gotten, I think by historical standards, very extreme 
you can argue that it's because they don't have to be unextreme, that they can keep doubling down and doubling down. Um, but would any of these projects be attainable so long as you have a party that is fundamentally opposed to democracy. They come out and say it. They say, we don't want people voting. We don't want all those people voting. Only certain people should be voting. We're in favor of less voting. So how do you begin the process of structural change so long as you have a party that is so ideologically opposed to democracy, frankly? Yeah, well, yeah, so in our book, we we do provide these criteria to kind of justify that sense that there there's an abandoning of democracy, you know, the, and our criteria are very straightforward, which are, you know, does a party accept election losses, win or lose? Do they uh, not use violence to gain power and to hold on po- to power? And then very critically, do they, do the politicians, mainstream politicians distance themselves from allies who might uh, violate those two first rules? And on those three dimensions, the Republican Party, as you say, is overrun by elements that have seemed to abandon democracy. So the question then, as you say, is, well, how do we get out of this bind? And, you know, this is certainly a dilemma of sorts, but we really do think that, you know, over the long run, uh, you know, in the short run, Democrats need to win. I mean, that was sort of comes back to your initial point. Democrats need to win. They need to, when, when they're in positions uh, with majorities, they need to implement reform. So, you know, back in, uh, you know, a couple years ago when Democrats had control of the Senate and control of the presidency and control of the House, there was the sense that maybe they could, maybe there could be a kind of opportunity to pass voting rights reforms. And some of these stumbled or maybe a ball, you know, a week in the filibuster that, that they, the Democrats stumbled. And so I think th- those are moments that, you know, it would have been great to achieve something um, to, without con- achieving, con- you know, having to go through the process of constitutional reform, a constitutional amendment. So I think that's that's the, that's the short run solution. But as I said at the beginning, you know, over the long run, you need to have two parties. And so our sense is that until uh, the party itself reforms, the Republican Party reform itself reforms, our democracy is always going to feel like it's on the verge of crisis. Every presidential election is going to feel like that, you know, the whole system might collapse. And so we think that these institutional reforms over the long run change the incentives facing parties and will change the dynamics of our politics. So in that sense, we're making a really a kind of institutional argument, you know, and it's not really a story of like, well, this is institutional engineering. It's just simply the idea that, you know, we can't just sit still and think things will take care of themselves. We really have to change the incentives facing politicians because, you know, there's sometimes this sense that, you know, people will use this kind of language that this is like a cult, the Republicans are in a cult, and that this is all irrational and so on. And, you know, maybe for some voters, there's, you know, really, there's some element of that. But I think what's actually true is very much the opposite. The Republicans are actually, politicians are acting very rationally, given institutional setup that they have. You know, and so we one of our interviews for our research for this book, we asked a political operative, you know, during presidential campaigns, when you were advising pr- Republican presidential candidates, did you ever think about winning uh, the popular vote? And he just laughed at us and said, of course not. You know, that, that's the last, you know, it's like trying to think about, you know, having the fewest number of points when in the, or fewest number of penalties when in the Super Bowl, you want to get the most points. And so, you know, people are acting very rationally in response to these institutions. And so we have to change the institutions in order to change the behavior and find the kind of the kind of uh, levers of kind of marginal change to begin with to begin to move in that direction. If I could make a very brief amendment to that, I agree with everything you said. There are clearly long-term and short-term ways out of, or responses to this perfect storm. And I think it is a perfect storm. I think that is making this this 
crisis much more dangerous than most of us anticipated. And, uh, you know, the, the institutional reforms we've been talking about are essential, but we absolutely must prevent authoritarian forces from coming to power. And that means just, and here's my small amendment, Democrats in the small D sense have to win, not just the large D. And I think that all of us who consider ourselves Democrats across parties and across ideologies have to do a much more serious job of building a broad coalition in defense of democracy. Um, I think we need to think much further outside of the box than we have and to take this threat more seriously, meaning that, you know, folks like Mitt Romney have to vote for the Democrats, not vote for their wife for president. And they have to say that publicly. And progressives in the Democratic Party have to make the sacrifices necessary to create space on their tickets and on their in their camp for conservatives. That must happen. Conservative religious leaders, business leaders, uh, and other figures and politicians have to be able and willing to join a broad coalition to ensure that Trumpism not only loses, but loses badly. Well, it's certainly a theme that I have um, hit over and over again. And uh, I know you guys are comparative um, political scientists, but both historically and geographically now, I think there's pretty conclusive evidence that if the opposition fractures, that's when the authoritarians can really get a a stranglehold. Um, if you're depressed and demoralized, like in Hungary after Orban's uh, initial election, you kind of uh, feed the sense, first of all, that you need a strong man to keep things in check. And secondly, you prevent alliances that are necessary in order to feed, uh, in order to defeat um, the uh, authoritarian figures. Before we went on, uh, Stephen made a very interesting comment, which is that there is a tide of anti-incumbency sweeping at least this hemisphere. Um, and perhaps it is the same phenomenon that we see in polls where I think they should stop asking it because it's meaningless now. The right track, wrong tra track. Who wants to say this country is on the right track? No one wants to say it's on the right track. Everyone has something that they don't like. Um, is this simply um, sort of the dissatisfaction of modern life? Is it because of the uh, failure to produce majoritarian outcomes? Is there something else at play? Um, certainly democracies have screwed up enough times over the last uh, 20 years or so with wars that shouldn't have been fought and recessions that were perhaps preventable. Why is it that you can practically never get a politician who has an approval rating, you know, over 50% anymore. I don't think we've fully figured this out yet. I think there clearly there are multiple factors. The reason that I ra raised this in our discussion before we went on air is I think this has consequences for the 2024 election um, in, in the United States. I think that, uh, that Donald Trump is going to benefit from this general grumpiness of the electorate. So what's going on? I think um, there's a certain element of, of sort of or, uh, discontent with modern life. I think there's pretty good evidence that the internet is probably contributing to this. I think for sure, COVID and its multiple consequences 
has has accelerated this process. Uh, the, there's a real market decline in incumbent performance since 2020. You know, economies took downturns. The, the issues with with uh, serious issues with public schools, obviously economic disruption. Uh, some governments responded better than others to to the pandemic, but 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 citizens in the aftermath of a couple of years of, of pandemic response were a lot less happier than, than they were just about everywhere. And there are idiosyncratic issues across different countries. I don't think counter-majoritarianism is really the issue because there are, the same problems exist or the same discontent exists in more majoritarian democracies elsewhere. So we're still getting our, our, our brains around it. it uh, I think a lot of it has to do with COVID and the disruption of COVID. I would start there in terms of explanation. Uh, but we have to come to grips with the fact that incumbents, it's, it's, whether it is North America or democracies in South America or democracies in Europe, incumbents are either losing or about to lose just about everywhere. There are, you, it's difficult to find a fully democratic system where incumbents have been reelected in the last five years. Well, I, would include in the list of problems um, the negative news bias, which I've written about. You don't sell papers by saying, um, you know, COVID's gone. You sell papers by saying COVID can go back. Um, and the coverage, for example, of the U.S. economic recovery has been mind-boggling from my end that you now have large percentage of the American people who think we're in a recession because the, the news is very doom and gloomy. Well, that's not And it. that inflation is rising. Exactly. Um, prices are rising. Inflation is reducing, which, again, you know, maybe that's too much to convey um, to an average audience. As we reach the end of our time, um, where would you like to start? In other words, if you could say to lawmakers, to voters, here's a good place to begin the process of grabbing back our democracy. Where would each of you start? Stephen? I, th I thought you were going to start with Daniel. I'm going to leave what I, what I I'm going to leave the, the filibuster to Daniel and say, um, I think at the at the at the heart of the matter when it comes to democracy is uh, is voting. Um, in almost any other democracy in the world, the government works hard to make it easy for people to vote. In fact, in most democracies in the world, the right to vote is in the Constitution. It's never been a general universal right to vote doesn't exist in the Constitution. I think there are steps that we could take. Whether it is um, citizens going out and helping people register to vote or get to the polls or lobbying our legislators to, 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 uh, to improve access to the ballot or, you know, deeper changes like a constitutional right to vote. We should be working as citizens and as legislators to, to, to uh, get more people to the polls, to make voting more accessible. Our democracy will be healthier if 75 to 80% of, of Americans were, adult Americans were voting in elections as opposed to 50 to 60. Um, let me let me hand it to Daniel. Yes, so I, I agree with that, and I think at the same time, a kind of and that and what Steve's describing doesn't require immediate constitutional changes. I mean, the, some of these things can be implemented at the state level, you know, again, automatic voter registration, as well as at the national level, with efforts to re, to construct some kind of voting rights act again that that would pass constitutional muster. Um, but but to to do all of that, I mean, there is this kind of uh, 
small procedural thing. There's a way forward. There's a path forward, and it goes right through the filibuster because it's the filibuster that blocks this stuff from happening at the national level. And so, you know, if the if the filibuster, you know, if we had our way, you know, I think eliminating the filibuster outright. But even short of that, you know, just you know, changing the changing in other other ways, you know, adding additional carve outs. Uh, lowering the, the 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 threshold as well, you know. So there's ways of weakening the filibuster that would allow our political system to reflect majorities. Now I understand there's people out there who are, you know, we've ha- heard you know feedback from people saying, well, you know, well, what happens if Trump comes to to office and uh, the Democrats are in the minority in the Senate? And oh my goodness, aren't we going to want the filibuster? But you know, I think this idea that we have to kind of we're paralyzed into inaction because of some fear of what might come in the future. When every other democracy is able to manage this, it's just is a kind of is a kind of defeatism that I think is just is going to doom us. I mean, we have to think about all of the incredible things that we could do if we weaken the filibuster. And that's really what we should focus on. I have to admit that your book really kind of pushed me over the edge on the filibuster. I was one being having my roots in small C conservatism that thought, oh, well, you need it there, you know, for all these reasons. Don't we have enough protection for the minority? Don't doesn't the Senate itself give these people enough of an advantage? And why should you have, you know, a tiny number of people from a tiny number of states with a tiny number of people holding up the whole train? So if your book convinced one person to get rid of the filibuster, it's me and you did it. I highly recommend the book. It is in very readable for the average person. It's not legalese. It's not political science ease. It's very doable. It's also fascinating because you bring up a lot of examples from around the world. So you can see that uh, how other countries have overcome it. So thank you both for the work you are doing. Uh, good luck with the book. And I uh, will hope to have you back uh, if our democracy survives sometime. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having us. And that was Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. Um, Really a fascinating discussion, not on my part, but on their part, having to do with how we have gotten ourselves into this fix where a small segment of the American electorate that happens to be white, Christian, older, rural, has got such a grip on the American political system. For a while, I thought this was going to pass with time. This generation will age out. Younger people are more diverse, are more open, are more concerned about things like the environment. But a few things that they said um, give me pause. And the main one is that when you set up a set of incentives that the party has no reason to reach out to a more diverse electorate, you're giving them an incentive to hang on for dear life to these um, little barnacles that they've attached to our constitution, then even a generational change may not be enough. You really do need some kind of structural change. And I think the other takeaway, at least for me, is that Democrats have to be more bold, not bold necessarily on policy, 
But it was a shame that they could not figure out how to get past the filibuster when they had the Senate, the House, and the White House. They could have used it for tremendously positive aims, not necessarily democratic policy objectives, but, for example, uh, getting voting rights for the District of Columbia, having easier access to the ballot, having a guaranteed period of early voting. These structural changes that allow more people to vote and more people to have access to the ballot was really frittered away because Democrats did not have the nerve to overthrow the filibuster. And I would say to Democratic voters, to independent voters, to Republicans who are thinking of voting for Democrats, that in the Senate elections upcoming, you should demand from those Democrats who are running that they make a pledge to adjust the filibuster. Perhaps they don't need to get rid of it entirely. But we cannot have a system in which voting itself is held hostage to a minority of a minority, that 41 senators from primarily rural, lowly populated states can prevent people from voting. Because as they said, voting is the essence of our democracy. If we wanted to have minority rule, we wouldn't make such a to-do about democracy. We wouldn't go around the world lecturing people that they have to have the people's voice. We wouldn't make a big deal of elections in which we say promises made, promises kept. The whole system depends on the legitimacy of a democratic society and a democratic electorate. And I would add one thing. We have millions and millions of voters who have been permanently disqualified because states do not allow former felons who have paid their debt, who have fulfilled all of the terms of their sentence, their probation period, paid whatever fines, are not allowed to vote. And that is a number, millions of people. And when you think about how close some of our elections are, that's the difference between winning and losing. So when we go looking for democratic reforms, restoring the franchise to people who have otherwise earned it uh, is a good place to begin. If you like this program and you like the ideas we talk about, please tell your friends, uh, tell them to listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.